Good morning. I just want to note, at the end of the year, I know of at least four or five families that I counted off the top of my head that are missing today, and we're setting up chairs. And that is something, we didn't do this for numbers. Numbers I don't think really matter to God, and yet it's incredible to think. A year and a half ago, a handful of families met here for a Bible study, and we're setting up chairs when five regular families are missing. It's wonderful to see what God is doing, and will continue to do. And we want to think about God's purposes and pressing into them this morning as we look at a text in Matthew 15. And so I'll ask you to turn there. We're going to look at Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28 this morning. And once you have found it, then I'll ask if you would please stand in reverence as we read God's holy word. And these are the words of God. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And may God bless the reading of his word. So after Christmas and after Advent, we want to get back into the flow of the story here as we work through the Gospel of Matthew. And by way of reminding us of where we left off, uh, last passage that we looked at had Christ getting in a heated exchange with the Pharisees over the nature of the authority between Scripture and tradition, and it came to quite a head. The Pharisees tried to accuse Christ and the disciples of breaking the fifth commandment, because they did not wash their hands before eating. But as we saw, hand washing was just an oral custom and not actually part of the law of Moses. And after acquitting himself and his disciples of all the charges, Christ goes from playing offense with the Pharisees to play, or from playing defense, he goes to playing offense against them. And he starts where they started at the fifth commandment and he systematically works down the rest of the commandments, showing them how they are guilty and they need new hearts. Their hearts were full of all kinds of corrupt things. Jesus says uh, their hearts were filled with evil thoughts, with murder, with adultery, with sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Christ had told the disciples that the Pharisees are blind guides, and he went back to play on an earlier parable that he had told about the tares in and among the wheat, uh, and essentially called the Pharisees tares that God has not planted. These men are the work of Satan. Uh, Their time is not yet. Don't uproot them yet. But their time will, in fact, be coming. And their doom is on its way. And that's where we pick up in verse 21. So after this exchange, it says in verse 21, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And so after this exchange, this heated exchange with the Pharisees, Christ leaves the Jewish region and he goes up northwest into a Gentile region that the Bible addresses as Tyre and Sidon. And this is a Canaanite region. And if you know your Old Testaments, you know that in the history of the Old Testament, the Canaanites were people uh, that the Jews looked down on. 
and for good reason. They are named after the father of this people, Canaan, who was the youngest son of Ham, who was the youngest son of Noah. And if you go back in Genesis 9 and you read the account, after Noah gets drunk, his older sons, Japheth and Shem, come and respectfully cover him up. And, and they're actually respectful enough to their father that they walk backwards as they come to cover him up so as not to look on his nakedness and his shame that he has brought himself to. And after that, Ham, or in this event, Ham dishonors his father by not showing the appropriate respect. And when Noah wakes up from his drunken stupor, he blesses Shem and Japheth for their honor and their dignity, and he curses Ham. And these men go out and, and they populate different regions in the post-flood world. Shem is the father of the Semitic, the Shemitic people. Okay, so the Semitic people to this very day are the sons of Shem. And these are the people who live on the uh, Arabian Peninsula. So these are Jewish people, Arabs, etc. Uh, people in that region are the sons of Shem. Japheth is the father of those who went up north and east. So the Asian and the European people are the sons of Japheth. And Ham went south. And Noah's curse on Ham in this exchange is interesting because it doesn't make sense to our North American sensibilities. We talk lots about the individualism in our culture, which actually makes no sense whatsoever, relative to the generational and covenantal thinking that has marked people through history, certainly God's people. Because Ham gets cursed indirectly through his youngest son, Canaan. And this is covenantal judgment, which shows, uh, demonstrates that in God's economy, fathers actually matter. Fathers make a difference. Fathers direct their families. And so it's interesting uh, that when Noah curses Ham, he does it through Canaan. And it's kind of a, a poetic judgment. It's as if to say, it's as if Noah took Ham aside and said, Ham, I have just experienced deep shame deep sorrow, and deep pain because of my youngest son. And your curse is that you are going to experience those exact same things through the means of your youngest son. You are going to be cursed in the exact same way, Ham, that you cursed me. And so this is covenantal judgment that is put, and it's poetic justice, so to speak, is that Canaan is going to feel pain in the same area where he made his father Noah feel pain. In Genesis 10, when it records the nations going out after the time of Noah, we see that almost all of Israel's historic enemies are Canaanites. People that fit into this broad category of the sons of Canaan are the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Philistines, the Sodomites, as well as others. These are the cursed sons of Canaan. And so what we're seeing here is that Christ has had an intense run-in with the Pharisees, with supposedly his own people, and then he leaves and goes into this region that is occupied by uh, Israel's historic enemies. So that's where we are. These maybe just sound like place names to us at this point in history, but back then, if you're in the biblical narrative, this would have been significant that Jesus is going to the place of his enemies, of people uh, that the Jews are at, uh, at odds with. In verse 22, it goes on and says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. It's so one of the most obvious and most important themes in the Gospel of Matthew is how Matthew represents Jesus, the Messiah, to his primarily Jewish audience. 
And this is why Matthew is so heavy in his usage of Old Testament imagery and language and patterns. And, and even the way he presents the narrative is clearly designed to show us how this mirrors uh, in Christ what Israel had done. That Jesus is the true uh, Israel. He is the better Israel that obeys God. And we see that in all the patterns. And I'd say the whole gospel of Matthew is actually structured. If you pay close attention, the, the gospel of Matthew it follows the outline of the Old Testament overall. It starts with an origin story. Then we move through the early days of an obscure kingdom. We have Jesus, the better Moses, going up into a mountain to receive law from the hands of God and then give it to the people. We have the boundaries of this kingdom moving steadily outward. We have opposition to this king and to his kingdom work. We have the death of the king. We have the destruction of Jerusalem for her disobedience. And then we have a time of rebuilding from the ruins. And we are at this part of the story in Christ, where the opposition to God's anointed servant is clearly intensifying and increasing. And by pulling out of the Jewish region and going to Tyre and Sidon and meeting a needy woman there, maybe, if you're starting to feel how this all works, maybe you're thinking, yeah, that reminds me of 1 Kings 17, and I'm glad you're thinking that, because this should remind you of 1 Kings 17. In that account, God likewise removes his servant from his people because of their sin and their unbelief. In this account, 1 Kings 17, Elijah predicts judgment on Israel, And he predicts this judgment in the form of a drought. And a further part of the judgment, when God is determined to judge a people, one of the things he does is send them not just a famine of rain, as frequently happens in the Old Testament, but also a famine of hearing the word of God. It's as if God says, I am more than happy to turn the lights out. If that's what you people are intent on, I will remove my word from you people. I will make my servant withdraw from Israel. I'm going to send Elijah out. You're not listening anyway. Part of your judgment is you don't get to hear the word of God any further. And so Elijah goes up to this exact same region. In this case, Elijah goes up to Sidon, where he meets an older widow lady in Zarephath. And this widow shows hospitality to Elijah for many days. And she bakes him bread uh, with flour that never runs out. And we've started to see that. Remember, there's another Elisha story of this uh, widow and her oil that never runs out. Well, in this case, Elijah is fed for many days by bread that is made from a widow lady whose flour never runs out as she feeds Elijah. And in fact, in this case, her flour and her oil both don't run out at all until this drought that Elijah is talking about has passed by. But in this account, this widow lady's son dies. And it cuts Elijah up because this woman has shown him hospitality. She's been kind to him. And now her son dies and Elijah grieves. This woman has shown hospitality, God. Why did you take her son from her? And Elijah takes his case to God and he goes and performs a miracle of reviving this son back to life. And now we have Christ predicting judgment and doom upon uh, the Pharisees, upon the Jerusalem uh, leadership, and he abandons them after they don't listen. Christ follows Elijah up to Sidon, this exact spot, where he meets also another woman with a needy child. And all of this has happened very shortly, within days, on the heels of Jesus performing a miracle with bread that never runs out. Okay, so you see how these patterns work. 
We've seen previously uh, how John and Jesus were very clearly uh, true Elijah and true Elisha. And here Jesus is also showing that he is also uh, Elijah in addition to being Elisha, which we have seen previously. And Luke 4 makes very explicit reference to Elijah and Elisha when it's retelling this account. In his gospel, Luke says that Elijah and Elisha were rejected by their own people, so they left and they performed their miracles among outsiders. Luke is saying this to shame these people, to show uh, what the consequence of their hardness to hearing the word of God is. And it draws attention to the fact that these guys went and performed miracles among outsiders. And specifically, Luke mentions this widow, and it also mentions the case of Naaman the Syrian, uh, who was healed miraculously as well. But the point is that the fact that these miracles are being performed outside, among outsiders, instead of among the Jewish people, is indeed a harsh judgment. And so when Jesus follows Elijah up to Sidon, 900 years later, he is also met by an outsider woman. And even though she's not Jewish, she seems to have had some of the knowledge of who Jesus is. She calls him Lord, for example, which is interesting. It may just be a term of respect, you know, lowercase l, Lord. It could be that. So it could have been just a general show of respect, but she also makes the interesting additional step of calling him the son of David, which is the whole theme of the Gospel of Matthew, to show that Jesus is this promised son of David. So this means this woman clearly has some level of knowledge about who this guy is. Word is traveling clearly about his preaching and about his miracles, both. And so that, combined with her plea for mercy for her daughter, is demonstrating that there is some kind of trust and faith in the Lord Jesus. She says her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And in our time and place, this is something we don't, well, maybe we have both edges occupied, where some people are hyper-focused on demonic activity behind everything, and some of us treat demonic activity as though it's not real. And the Bible shows us a way that avoids both of those things. There's plenty of enough sin in all of our own hearts that we don't need to blame demonic activity for much of what happens. We are capable of plenty of evil on our own without any help whatsoever. But that does not mean that the unseen world is not real. The Bible affirms that the unseen world is real. And we see demonic activity isn't just flat through the Bible either. It concentrates in places and in times either where the gospel has never reached to or that still remain in pre-Christian darkness or it intensifies when something significant is about to happen. And this makes sense that there's demonic activity here there, uh, and at the time of Christ. One, this is an unreached region. And secondly, uh, the demonic activity that clearly is intensified around the ministry of Jesus makes sense because this is kind of a demonic last stand. Remember when Jesus... Uh, they cast the demons into the swine. They think, you know, they ask, are the days going to be shortened? You know, is this, are you going to do this ahead of time? They know their days are numbered. They know that the head crusher is here, but they're putting up one last stand uh, before he does drive the nail into the head of Satan. But this woman is in turmoil because of the state of her daughter, and she begs Christ to have mercy on her and on her family. And like I say, we've seen how John and Jesus served as Elijah and Elisha figures, and here we see it again. This whole account is meant to show us that this is one, well, not just this account, but the whole gospel is meant to show us that God is on one prolonged rescue operation of redemption for his creation, and that Christ is the ultimate head of this new humanity that God is building. He is the second Adam. 
In verse 23 and 24, it goes on and says, But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Many people struggle with this passage because it seems so out of character for Jesus to be seemingly so stoic and so unconcerned about a needy person. Jesus always is quick to show compassion, and here he seems to be quite aloof. He doesn't seem to care, and people have wondered, why is, this, why is Jesus acting so out of character here? And it may seem like it's out of character until we see the resolution at the end of the story and discover what Christ is actually doing. But he stands here just in silence after hearing her desperate plea. The disciples come up and start begging as well. And Matthew Henry, commenting on this, says that probably, and I would tend to agree with this, probably the disciples don't just want to send her away empty-handed, but they do clearly want to get rid of her. This woman's a mess, okay? Uh, And they just want to be rid of her. She's crying, sobbing, you know, who knows how she looks. She's making a scene around them. They just want her gone. It may well be that they want Jesus to answer her prayer, but they clearly want her gone because she is an embarrassing mess. She's making everyone uncomfortable with her crying out. And most likely she is causing a scene. So for the sake of their own convenience, they would like Jesus to quickly do a miracle and just be done with this woman. Don't test her. Don't push her. Just get it over with. But then Jesus explains his inaction. The reason he's not going to heal this woman is because she's not Jewish. Simple enough. Makes actually total sense at this point in the story. Jesus came to the lost house of Israel She's not from the lost house of Israel. Sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. And perhaps you recall what we've covered already in the Gospel of Matthew. Back in chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 12, he gives them instructions along these lines. He says, These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, now give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And so Jesus gives his 12 a mission to go preaching in Israel. Don't go to the outsider regions. We're here to rescue Israel. So do that. But there's hints already here that they're going to encounter people who don't care. They're going to encounter people who don't listen, and then you need to shake the dust off. And it's going to be better for the Sodomites and for Gomorrah than it is for these people who have the word of God and refuse to listen. So we see hints of that. We see breadcrumbs leading to this. And we know that Jesus came to conclude and to perfect the covenants that God had made earlier with the patriarchs and the heads of the Old Testament. And so this woman is right. Christ did come as the son of David. The way she talks to Jesus is correct. And this means that he came to the Jewish people. So even in her own title that she gives Jesus, she understands this man is a Jew for the Jews. And Christ is letting her know that his ministry is to come to Israel. Yes, you're right. I came for Israel. I came for the lost people of Israel. 
And he has been instructing the twelve in accordance with that as he has sent them out. But it goes on in verse 25 to 27. It says, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And so Jesus not only refused to answer her first plea, but he's actually giving a compelling reason for why he's not going to answer it. But she is not deterred. She says again, Lord, help me. And you can hear the desperation in her voice, right? You can almost picture this almost hysterical woman and Jesus just stands there and gives her the silent treatment. And she begs some more and he says why he's not going to help her. And then you can almost see as though it's in a movie almost that she just grabs him and you see the, you know, the, her eyes getting big and this desperation knowing of what's going on at home with her demon-oppressed little girl. Just, Lord, help me. I'm desperate. But despite the desperation, Jesus resists her again. But this time, he does it even more strongly. He has explained that he came for the Israelite people, of which she has no part. And she refuses to take no for an answer, and she asks again. And now Jesus said that it would not be right to take Israel's bread and give it to the dogs. Dogs, typically, in the Bible, are seen as dirty animals. In the biblical conception, they tend to be dirty animals. But the exact wording here could refer to a small dog, a small pet dog. But one difference between the biblical world, the real world, and our world uh, is that people clearly knew the difference between people and animals. Fur babies didn't exist in the Bible because they don't exist in real life. Okay? Dogs are wonderful pets. I love our dog. But it's not a fur baby. It's not a person. It's a dog. It's a dog. Okay? And just in case I need to be clear, it's a dog. Okay? So if I have the choice of saving one of my children from a burning house or the dog that I actually love and pet on the head and play with every day, I will take human life every single time. Okay? So even if Jesus is talking about a friendly, a pet dog that these people might genuinely love and appreciate and play with and pet and feed, at the end of the day, Jesus still called her a dog. Okay? Now sometimes women get called dogs in our culture too. And it's never meant in a flattering way, okay? Even people who love dogs, if you, if you call a woman a dog, that's not happy. Jesus called this woman a dog. Whatever you do with this story, you have to reckon with the fact Jesus called this woman a dog. It's not a flattering term. And surely, by now, this poor woman, whose life is not going according to plan, she must feel defeated, and she must feel ready to give up on her request. Keep in mind, so now what's happened in this exchange? Jesus has given her the silent treatment. Then the disciples come and say, just get rid of her. She's embarrassing. She's a hot mess. Just send her away. Then Jesus says, I didn't actually come for people like you, woman. Sorry. Wrong ethnicity. I didn't come for you. Sorry. You're out of luck here today. And then he calls her a dog. It's not looking like this is her lucky day, does it? Put yourself in the story. Is this your lucky day if you're this woman? Sure, not shaping up to be that way. And then he says, not just is she a dog, but she's not worthy of the children's food. It's pretty discouraging. I'm not listening to you, woman. My disciples want you gone. You're the wrong ethnicity. You're a dog, and you're not worthy of the food that I have for my children. But this must be quite some woman 
because she is undeterred. This woman is not willing to take no for an answer. And if you use your imagination for just a little, think of how desperate she truly was. Maybe you can get a glimpse into it. You know, I've never been a mother, but I've had a mother and grandmothers, and I am married to a mother. And mothers tend to love their children a lot and to be very protective over them. And now think of the love a mother naturally has for her children. And then you've got a daughter that's not just demon-oppressed, but it says severely. So we have to ask, what is this? And the Bible doesn't say. Is she given to violent seizures? Is she angry? Is she hurting people? Is she violent? Is there some kind of disease riddling her body? Is there, are there demonic utterances that just seem dark? Is there this aura of demonic darkness around her? It doesn't say. But it does say she's severely oppressed. Okay? So there's not something just a little bit wrong with this girl. Whatever is wrong with her is severe. This woman is desperate. She needs help. And she's not finding it. At least not yet. This woman is determined to get Christ to help her. And if we pay close attention, you'll notice that even in her desperation, even in her persistence, there is zero self-absorption and there is zero self-centeredness in her plea. She's not arguing with Jesus. She's not going on some rant about how wonderful she is or about how God loves everyone equally and so she's owed this love. She's not saying, girl, know your worth. She's not talking about how her girl is a, ha- you know, a hashtag boss girl, babe. There's none of that. She doesn't fight Jesus at all. She accepts that she's a dog. She accepts it. I'm a dog. Yep, you're right, Jesus. You're right, I'm not worthy of the children's food. I deserve nothing from you. You owe me absolutely nothing. I'm not going to fight you on that. That's true. You owe me nothing. Yet she persists in the request, not on the basis that God's mercy is owed to her, but on the basis that the fatherhood of God means that the children will have enough bread. And if a few crumbs fall to the floor as leftovers, the dogs will be able to eat it. That's what she's pressing into. Yes, I'm a dog. Yes, I don't deserve it. But I've seen enough about this son of David to know that there will be crumbs that fall from the table. And that itself will be enough. It's not owed to me. I will receive it by grace. And in our own conversion, it works the same way. The first step of conversion is realizing that we are not owed mercy. If anyone thinks God owes someone mercy, guess what you are not thinking about? You are not thinking about mercy. Mercy, by its very definition, is not owed. It's not compelled. It's not deserved. It is given as a gift. God owes nobody mercy. God owes nobody grace. We are beggars in need of whatever we can get from the hand of the Father. And our sin and our rebellion against God has reduced us literally to the place of animals, devouring whatever crumbs we can find. And this is what true repentance looks like. This happened very literally. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He's literally reduced to an animal so he can get his mind back. That's all of us. We do not deserve the grace of God. We're animals that are reduced to begging for crumbs. And this is true repentance. To believe God when he says that the thoughts and the intentions of your heart are only desiring only evil continually. 
Genesis 6 verse 5 could not possibly be clearer. You only desire only evil continually. That's what you want. Do you agree with Jesus? Do you agree with Ezekiel who says that a man can no more change himself than a leopard can change his spots? Do you agree with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians that by nature you are a child of wrath? Do you agree with the book of Romans that you are in the flesh completely unable to make even the first step towards God? You can do absolutely nothing in your flesh that will please God. Can you believe what Jesus just said to the priestly class, to the Pharisees of Israel of all places, who said that their heart wasn't the way out, but their heart is actually the nest that is nurturing every evil thought. Nurturing murder, nurturing adultery, nurturing sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus just said that to the good people. Can we agree with that? That's who we are. Does God owe us mercy? No, he does not. No, he does not. The truly repentant person does not make excuses for who he or she is. He doesn't make reasons why my sin is acceptable. Okay? Yeah, it's bad if other people do it, but you don't understand, God, it's me, and I had perfectly good reasons for sinning. That's not what repentance looks like. Repentance accepts the judgment. Repentance accepts what the Bible says about us. And this is exactly what this most godly woman has done. She agrees with Jesus, and then she calls out for mercy. Not for what's deserved, but for mercy. She agrees with Christ's assessment of her. She doesn't complain, even though he has offered up multiple forms of interference for her. She just keeps persisting, because she is desperate for mercy. And when she sees herself as she is, when she agrees with Christ's judgment that she is an unworthy beggar, then at that moment she has passed the test, and Jesus answers her. Verse 28 says, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So Jesus is commending this Gentile woman for her faith. She has persisted despite the hesitancy even from Jesus Christ himself. And because of her great faith, Christ grants her request. And this is not unlike another story that we've already read in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 8, when Christ helped another Gentile. The centurion, this military ruler, this Roman military ruler, acknowledges that despite all the earthly power he has, and he brags, I tell these people to come and they come, I tell them to go and they go, everyone has to listen to me because I'm a centurion. And then he acknowledges that even I am one under authority. He acknowledges who Jesus is, a form of true repentance. And so these two outsiders who have their needs, who have their requests met by Christ, and the reason given is because they have seen who God is. And people, when you see who God is, you suddenly get a picture of who you are. Okay? You can't understand yourself without reference to God. You see who God is, you will see who you are, and that changes our whole posture that we take to God. In this case, this woman is receiving breadcrumbs, and that is entirely fitting And it, well, it's fitting with her attitude, but it's also fitting that it happens when and where it does. She's being ministered to in the same place where Elijah ministered to the widow of Zarephath, in Sidon, in and among and around the Canaanite people. That woman was able to make bread out of flour and oil that never ran out. And she's also being ministered to on the heels of Jesus showing 
that he is more than capable to provide bread without any end to the supply. Christ performs the miracle of bread, which is fed thousands. And remember, that's just like a day or two ago. And his own people don't understand what it means. And then, in the face of opposition, Christ withdraws to a hostile region where he finds faith. Okay? The Jewish people are getting loaves by the thousands, and they have no idea what's going on. Okay? Then Jesus goes to an outsider who's happy for crumbs. Okay? And how is that for us as Christians? Everyone here is hearing the word of God. Okay? You're familiar with the Bible. Perhaps you've grown up in a Christian home. Are you actually hearing it? Because woe to the people that are surrounded by the blessings of Christ and refuse to listen. Christ will go to outsiders. Okay? And we saw that previously. What if the blue-haired campus feminist gets into the kingdom of heaven before you? Okay? Because your religion is just external window dressing. That's what's threatened here. That's when Jesus goes to outsiders. This woman knows her place. She knows who she is. She's not disagreeing. She gets it. Jesus' own people don't get it. This outsider woman does. And it reminded me of that old saying that a healthy man has a thousand wishes and a sick man has one. This woman is reduced to one wish. Her life is a disaster and she just needs mercy. Okay? The rest of us are healthy and happy and we're going about our business. We want a thousand things. This woman wants one thing. That's repentance. So it's as though Christ is making sure everyone around is gathered in to listen to what's going on here and saying, look, guys, here's someone who gets it. Here's someone who actually understands the nature of the miracles I've been doing. This woman knows that the bread isn't actually about feeding your stomach. It's bigger than that. This woman understands that Christ is teaching in his miracles. These miracles aren't just tricks. They're lessons. They're lessons that complement his verbal teaching. Christ is teaching that God's providence never runs out. There is always enough for everyone with plenty left over. In the ancient times, the flour and the oil of the widows never ran out. Just recently, the fish and the bread on the shores of Galilee never ran out. And so this poor woman is actually making application of that. She catches on. She gets it. It doesn't run out. I get crumbs off the table. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm a dog and I get crumbs. How sweet this is. How sweet this is. This poor woman is making application. Yes, Jesus did come to Israel. And yet, amazingly, there is enough bread for her to be blessed as well. God's providence and his grace do not get thinner as they get spread over a bigger area. Okay? It never runs out. The persistent Canaanite woman is pressing into this by faith. And this is an early glimpse into what is made unquestionably clear as the gospel goes on, as Jesus' ministry goes on. We just saw at Christmas how Jesus is the seed of Abram. We just celebrated his birth and the promise to Abram that God made that his seed through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The gospel is indeed first given to the Jews, but it is abundant enough to go out to the Gentiles as well. Jesus is later going to give a parable in chapter 22 about a wedding feast. You remember that one, right? Everyone who's invited is a no-show. They've got better things to do than to come to some crummy wedding. So what happens? Well, we're going to go out on the highways and byways. The scum of the earth is going to come in. Why? Because they're willing. Okay? The good people don't want to. The scum of the earth, come, enjoy the wedding. That's us. We're the ones reduced to begging for crumbs. 
We're going to see how Christ's ascension is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, where all the nations are put under his feet. And then we have the gift of Pentecost, which isn't just a gift of making strange sounds. It's a gift of actual human language that clearly demonstrates that the curse of Babel is once and for all reversed. The gospel is for all nations, for all languages today. That's why people hear the gospel in their own native language. And the gospel of Matthew is going to end with Christ telling his disciples, go out to all the world disciple and baptize the nations. This is picked up in John's gospel in a frequently misunderstood text. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Some of our charismatic friends understand that to be will do greater miracles than Jesus. So Jesus raised someone from the dead so I can do the same thing. And that's not at all what John is teaching. Pretty tough to top feeding 5,000 people or raising people from the dead. The greater works that we do is the expansion of the gospel that comes after Pentecost, after the ascension. The greater gifts is the evangelization as the gospel goes out, not just to the Jews only, but also to the Gentiles. And the story of this outsider woman is an early taste of what it looks like for the abundant mercy of Christ to start spilling off the table and start feeding even the dogs even people like you and me start getting fed off this table. And this woman should teach us still. She brings a very specific request to Christ. She is not at all presumptuous, but she is persistent. And she's not asking because she thinks she deserves something from Jesus, but because she knows Jesus can be trusted as a generous giver of all good gifts. And I'm curious too, we, we can apply this to conversion most certainly, we can also apply it to our prayer lives, I do believe. When we pray, do we have the courage to be specific? Do you have the courage to be specific? Okay. It's maybe fine to pray, God bless all the little boys and girls. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But do you have the courage to pray for this boy or this girl by name and to press in? And if God sets up roadblocks or he says, nope, not yet, not yet, do you have the faith to not be presumptuous this isn't name it and claim it. This isn't blab it and grab it. This is godly persistence, humble persistence, okay? Humble persistence. God owes you nothing, but keep pressing. Keep pressing. Be specific. Lord, help me find my husband. Lord, break my child's heart until they come to bend the knee to you. We've prayed specifically for a specific building, and it seems, as far as we can tell, that that is not the Lord's plan. And then we need to recalibrate and pray differently. But we need to pray specifically. We're looking for a place to meet permanently. Let's be specific. Be specific. Pray for that. We want uh, room. We want classrooms. We want a kitchen. Be specific. God holds the keys in his hands, so we may have to change gears. But this passage isn't so much to teach us to be willing to change our plans, as we most certainly must. What we're instructed to here is to be persistent. Be specific. Keep asking. Keep asking. And if Christ sets up roadblocks, uh, don't just give up. Persist. I know people who have prayed for 40 years for lost children. I heard a story this last week of a pastor uh, whose wife came persistently to church. Her husband was a World War II vet. And this woman came 60, 70 years to church by herself and lived with an unbelieving husband. And she prayed every day for her husband to be converted. And right at the end of his life, this man calls the pastor in 
And on his deathbed, God answers this woman's prayer. Okay? She persisted for 60 years. Can we persist? Can we keep pushing for God to do unlikely things for the bread crumbs to come off the table? I think we can. And I think that's what we're being taught here. Keep persisting. Keep pressing on. God's abundance, God's providence is so full. There's enough for everyone. And it keeps falling off the table. Press into it. Ask for it. And receive it with joy. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for how you teach. Lord, you teach with miracles. And you also teach with words, with sermons. Lord, and you do it perfectly. You blend it perfectly together to help us see, to give us tactile lessons of what it's like to press in to your promises. Lord, to see us for who we are and to see you for who you are. Lord, we are beggars looking for bread. And yet you don't leave us in that state. Lord, you are happy to answer. You are happy to give us uh, every good thing that we need. You do not withhold it. Lord, and I pray for us. I pray that we would learn from this woman. That we would learn what it's like to accept your judgment, to accept your ways, to not make excuses for ourselves, but to accept what you say about us. And that that would not discourage us, but that it would make us humble and ready to accept every good gift from your hand. Lord, I pray that we would receive the crumbs with gladness and see that it's not just mere crumbs that you're satisfied to give us, but you give us an inheritance beyond measure. Lord, I pray that we would press into that. I pray that we would think this way about uh, our own salvation. I pray that we would remember this as we pray for the salvation of other people. And I also pray that we would remember it when we pray for more everyday things, like a church building, like a piece of land, uh, like a, a permanent place to meet, like so many other things that just seem mundane, difficult situations at work. Whatever it may be, Lord, you know each one's needs. And I pray that your spirit would carry you to your throne. And that we would persist in humble acceptance and humble trust that there is no good thing that you will withhold from your children. Lord, thank you. Drive this lesson into our hearts. And I pray that by your spirit, we would push it into the corners and make application everywhere in our lives. Thank you for your kindness. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And amen. Please stand as we sing the closing song.
The Canaanite woman is a glorious example of what humility and perseverance look like when they are both present in the same person. This woman has been blessed with the insight to see past the physical display of Christ's miracles and into their meaning. She sees that flour and oil and bread and crumbs have to do with God's abundant provision and fatherly care for those who are his. This fatherly providence is so detailed that it is even concerned with placing this woman at the feet of Jesus in the same place where another woman was placed at the feet of Elijah. She knows that there is no wasted detail in God's design and that there is no less mercy left over for one just because others have received mercy first. Even the dogs have enough from the children's food. So the charge is this. Remember that there is no end in God's storehouse. We deserve none of it, yet we become heirs to all of it when we are adopted into God's family. Do you understand this? Do you believe it enough to be specific and persistent, yet humble and teachable, when you take your requests to the Lord? And I'll leave you with a benediction from number 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his, sh his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And go in peace.